Well, uh, we're winding down our series in the book of Psalms. We've got uh, today and then two more weeks uh, in the weeks that follow. And uh, we've been just looking at a different psalm each week and over time kind of trying to enrich our prayer lives as we look at the, the prayer book, really, of the people of God. Uh, you'll want to join us next week. Next week, uh, we uh, are going to look at Psalm 137. Uh, psalm 137 is one of what are uh, called imprecatory psalms. They're the psalms where the psalmists pray for their enemies to be hurt in some way. <laughs> it's the kind of prayers you pray when you drive to work, right? You all say, oh, I pray all the time as I go to work. Yeah, I know you do. You pray imprecatory prayers. They cut you off and you pray, Lord, blind them, <laughs> right? So you, you're familiar with this kind of psalm. But uh, next week, Psalm 137, if you even just want to start looking at it and uh, and as you do, I think you'll be led to pray for me. You'll go, how's he going to make sense of this? Uh, because in Psalm 137, one of the things we're told, uh, or one of the prayers, is that the, the babies of the leadership in Babylon would have their heads dashed against the rocks. So that's in God's word. We'll try to make sense of that. So come back next week. Uh, this week, we're going to look at really the opposite of that. We're going to look at what you could call a K-love psalm. It's so positive and encouraging. <laughs> you're familiar with K-Love, the Christian radio station. And so it is just like filled with all these unbelievable things. It's so encouraging. You could have all sorts of uh, bumper stickers and coffee mugs and prayer quilts and, you know, wonderful stenography. You could just do all kinds of great things with Psalm 121. And so uh, here's what we're going to look at today as we guide our way through this, is we're going to consider the staggering promise of Psalm 121. So a staggering promise then we'll look at a staggering disconnect, and then we're going to look at a decisive question. So a staggering promise, a staggering disconnect, and then a decisive question. So that's where we're going to look at here today. You see at the beginning of Psalm 121 that it's a song of ascent. Do you see that in the superscription at the top of the, the psalm? And uh, there are actually 15 songs of ascent beginning with Psalm 120. And uh, this is just so you kind of understand what this is. Scholars aren't exactly sure what it means, but it, it for sure has to do the idea of approaching the temple in Jerusalem. And so a lot of scholars believe that probably these songs of ascent were prayed and recited and sung as pilgrims would travel on their way to Jerusalem for key festivals or different things like that. There's sort of this forward-looking uh, towards Jerusalem, toward the hills of Jerusalem. Uh, there are also people who think perhaps that these were prayed in the temple. There are certain parts in the temple where there were 15 steps. So the thought is maybe on step one you prayed Psalm 120 and then you went up a step and prayed Psalm 121. And it was this way of preparing your heart to enter before the Lord. So that's what a song of ascent is. And in this uh, psalm, we have just this unbelievable, staggering promise. It comes really as, a, as an answer to the question that's posed in verse 1. Look at verse 1. He says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? Right, and you just kind of picture this person who's traveling on his way to Jerusalem. And if you've never seen Jerusalem, it, it looks a lot like the superstition mountains. There's these sort of small and hills and mountains and things like that. And he's sort of approaching this. And he's looking up to the hills. And he's contemplating how much he needs help. And he says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? This psalmist is looking for help. He needs help. He needs someone to guide him. He needs someone to direct him. Where is his help going to come from? Well, the answer comes in verse 2. My help comes from the Lord 
from Yahweh, from the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. God is able to help because God made it all. God rules over all. That's what we talked about last week. And then the rest of this psalm really gives us this staggering promise. Where are we going to find help? We're going to find help from a God who keeps us, who protects us, who watches over us. Look at the word keep and how prominent it is in these other verses. Verse 3, he who keeps you will not slumber. Verse 4, behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Verse 5, the Lord is your keeper. Verse 7, the Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in forever. Keep. This is this uh, important word. It means to watch over, to guard, to protect. It's used a few different other places in the Psalms. You can see Psalm 127, verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches... That's the same word as keep here in Psalm 121. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Psalm 97, 10. Oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves, that's the same word, he preserves the life of his saints. So what this word means is that God is protecting. God is guarding. God is watching over. God is keeping. And this is, Just a staggering promise when you consider the detail and the scope to which this psalm promises God will protect and God will guard us. Look at what it says in verse 3. It says, he will not let your foot be moved. What's that mean? That's specifically using language that describes an animal being caught in a trap. Right? So it's saying God is going to protect you from being trapped, from being blindsided, from being caught up in some sort of snare. It says that God is not going to fall asleep on you. Do you see that in verse 3? He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. What are the things that at least most adults in our community feel like they need the most? Have you said, what what would you like to have more than anything? It'd be a tight race between money, sex, and sleep. And my money might be on sleep. Because we just, we're tired, we're worn out. What this is saying is God never feels that. God never gets tired. God never dozes off. Right? I feel like the Olympics are just going to completely undo me, right? I'm going to stay up watching these, but every, but every night I just fall asleep. God doesn't fall asleep. God doesn't doze off. And specifically here, it's the idea that God is the watchman. God is the patrol person. God is on guard, And God's not going to doze off and let the enemies rush in and trap you. God is going to stay awake. He's going to be vigilant. He's going to be for you. Then it says that the Lord will protect us from other kind of environmental dangers. And he's on guard all the time. It says in verse 5, the Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. Any other Phoenicians appreciate shade? Right? This is saying God is going to protect you. He's going to comfort you. He's going to provide blessing and cover and a degree of comfort. Verse 6, the sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. Saying day or night, God is protecting you. Day or night, God is watching over you. He's not going to let you be sunburned, and he's not going to let you be out in the moonlight exposed to danger from people who might attack you. He's going to cover you. He's going to protect you. And then, the most staggering of all the promises, verses 7 and 8. The Lord 
will keep you from all evil. The Lord will not let you experience the damage of evil. He's going to protect you from that. He's going to guard you from that. He's going to watch over that and make sure that doesn't happen. He will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. You will live. You won't die. You'll live. He'll protect you. Anything that threatens your life will be stopped by the watchdog God. He will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. This is a staggering promise. Right? What this is saying is that God is not like that sign that you have outside your house that says you have a security system, even though you don't. Right? That sign or that dog that's going to bark really loud that's just supposed to scare away the people but actually can't protect you. God's not like that, according to Psalm 121. God is a Navy SEAL. And he is on guard, and he is ready, and he is awake, and he is better than you. And he will win, right? That's what this is saying. This is an unbelievable promise. And this is a contrast to the gods of the nations, right? One of the things that the psalmist here said was God wouldn't fall asleep. That brings to mind a, a, one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible, which is the story of Elijah in 1 Kings 18. And in that story, Elijah is having this showdown with the prophets of Baal. The, there were these prophets who believed that in this false god, Baal. And uh, Elijah was one of the very few faithful Jews and faithful uh, prophets left. And uh, he says, you know what, let's have a showdown. Let's have, you know, this, like, this would be a good reality show. Let's see whose God is really God. And so he says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to build two altars. We're going to get two animals prepared for sacrifice. And then we're each going to call out to our gods. And whichever God sends fire down from heaven to light the sacrifice, that's the God who's really God. Ready? Go. You go first. And so he gives them the chance. And they prepare their sacrifice and their altar. And there they go. And they're hooting and they're hollering and they're dancing and they're shouting out and they're praying to Baal. Right? They're cutting themselves to kind of prove to Baal how serious they are about this. And, and on and on they go, hour after hour after hour, no fire. What's really fun, it's actually this really funny passage. You should go read it. If, uh, 1 Kings 18. And Elijah starts mocking them. He starts trash talking. He starts saying, hey, where's your God? Where's Baal? What happened? Did he go on vacation? Oh, he went on a trip, didn't he? Oh, I get it. He's relieving himself. He had to step out for a minute to go to the bathroom. That's what it actually says. He's tr talking trash. And he says, oh, oh, I get it. Baal's probably asleep and he can't hear you. Well, they go and they go and they go and nothing ever happens. And so Elijah says, all right, my turn. And he gets a bunch of water and he soaks the sacrifice and he soaks the altar just to make sure no one thinks there's any secret pyrotechnics underneath it. And it's all drenched and it's all there. And he cries out. He says, Lord, do it. God lights it. Just incinerates the whole thing. It laps up every bit of water. And it shows that there is a God who doesn't sleep. There is a God who keeps Israel. There is a God who reigns and rules over all things, and it's not Baal, it's Yahweh. This psalm is tapping into that same thing. It's saying you have a God who is for you, who will protect you, who will guard you. No evil will come against you. No threats on your life will succeed. 
That's the staggering promise. Now, let me just let you into the tension of preaching. I hope you feel some of this tension as you read the Bible for yourself. As I, I as a preacher, feel called first to be faithful to the text. I don't get to come up here and just say whatever I think. I really see myself as being under the authority of the scriptures, under the authority of the Bible, where I'm not just using the Bible, I'm not just preaching from the Bible, I have to say what the text is saying. To the degree that I'm saying what the text is saying is the degree to which I'm being faithful. So if you hear preaching uh, here at this church or anywhere else and you go, that isn't what the text said, that was a moment when that preacher wasn't being faithful. So I'm called to be faithful to the text. We get the text. This is absolutely a staggering promise. God will protect you. But as a preacher, I, I don't just have to be faithful to the text. I have to be faithful to our context, to our lives, to our people, to our situation. Because this isn't just sort of truth that hovers above history. This is truth that has to sink into our actual lives. It has to connect with where we are. Right? So I could just get up here and say this and close in prayer, but I don't think that would necessarily be being faithful to our context. Because if I think about our context, I think about our lives, it sure doesn't feel like God always protects us. Does it? Is there anybody in here who would say, I've been kept from all evil? You ever been to the funeral of a Christian? Show of hands. Everyone, except for those of you who don't like to raise your hands. Every, right, like, yeah, okay. The Lord said he would keep their life. So there's a staggering disconnect, right? We have this staggering promise. It's like, whoa, this is absolutely amazing. But then we have our lives, our situations where we go, really? Like, are you serious? You really believe Psalm 121? Like, that clearly is not how the world seems to work, right? You go, I, I love the Lord, but I still get sick. I love the Lord, but my kids still rebel and go the exact direction I told them would be foolish. I love the Lord, but someone I love is in chronic pain. I love the Lord, but I struggle with depression and anxiety. I love the Lord, but I feel like all kinds of evil comes against me. I love the Lord, but I watch people on the news who are Christians, who get beheaded and killed in other countries, and it sure feels like a lot of evil's happening to them, and a lot of life isn't being spared for them. I love the Lord, and because I love the Lord, I bring children into my house, kids who have been kind of caught up in a difficult foster care system, and I hear their stories, and I get to know them, and I realize they haven't been kept from evil. And I care for them. I love them. I invite them into my own very family. And then my heart breaks when they have to go back into a situation that I know isn't as good as the one they have in my house. And you're telling me the Lord will protect us from evil? Come on. So what do we do? Right, we have a text that is this staggering promise. 
We have our reality that's a staggering disconnect. Do we go, well, I don't know, I don't need, I, it hurts to think about those things, so I'll just believe Psalm 121. I don't want to think about it. That answer is not going to be real helpful when tragedy strikes you. Do we go, well, I knew it. The Bible's just a bunch of myths and a bunch of crutch, and it's just for people that like, need some encouragement, I guess, but it's obviously not true. I'm not ready to go there. What do we do? How can we look for help? Right, That's what this psalm begins with. Where does my help come from? How can we look for help from a God who seems asleep? How can we trust a God who it seems may not necessarily keep us from evil? How can we pray to a God who seems completely incapable of really protecting me? How do we begin to make sense of this? And so that leads us to a decisive question. The decisive question, and I'll unpack this, but the question is this, what story are you living in? What story are you living in? That's the decisive question. The way you answer that story, that, that question, what story am I living in, will either make it where, yes, this thing makes no sense and you can't embrace it, or it will actually make it where you can embrace it and find tremendous hope from it. But it depends. What story are you living in? Here's kind of a big idea, and I'm going to unpack this more. Here's the big idea. The kind of help we're looking for depends greatly on the story we're living in. So depending on what story you think you're in, depending on what the, the, the problem is and the solution is, depending on what the happy ending is of the story you're living in, that will shape what kind of help you look for, and that will shape whether you actually receive the Lord's help. What kind of story are you living in? Here's a few different stories that we could potentially live in. Confident a number of us really live in this story more than the true story. We could live in a kind of secular story, a kind of God's not really here story, a kind of, well, this is, you know, I, God who? Right? I was thinking about this as I was watching the opening ceremonies of the Olympics the other night. And you're watching all of these nations stream into this stadium. Right? As a follower of Christ, I just thought, this is exactly like heaven. Except one major omission. No one talked about God. Now, I don't necessarily expect them to talk about God. But there's a, there's a story that's being lived in there. There's a story that says what we really need is to come together around the Olympic spirit. No mention of God, no thought of God, and that's a story that many of you and many of us live in. God is distant, God is absent, I don't think about him, he doesn't affect me, I just care about what's here and now, what I can feel and touch and smell, that's all that matters to me. So that's one story you could live in. Maybe the story you're living in is the American dream story. I work hard, raise my kids, send them to a good school, do the right things, pay my taxes, and I'm going to be happy. 
And the story that I want is I want God to help me be happy. Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. And happiness, by the way, is whatever I think it is. And so I want God to help me with what I really want, which is to have money and go on good vacations and retire comfortably and be at peace. Okay? Well, if that's the story you're living in, then you're going to ask God to help you live that story out, and God doesn't promise to live, help you with that. You're going to look at Psalm 121 and go, nope, doesn't work. Why? Because you're not living in God's story, you're living in the American dream story. Another story you might live in would be the, the, a religious story, where you say, well, I'm, if I'm a good person, if I'm faithful, if I uh, read the Bible, if I care about God's mission, if I serve the poor, if I take care of the hungry, if I do whatever it is that my parents told me to do or my church tells me to do or my religious subculture tells me to do, if I do those things, then God will bless me. Then God will give me the spouse that I want. Then God will allow me to have kids. Then God will allow there to be a faithful generation of grandchildren after me. Then God will allow me to have a, you know, a, a more religious version of the American dream. But the story there is, God owes me, right? Because I've paid my taxes. I'm a taxpayer. I've done the right thing. I've served in this way. I've given money to the church. I've been good. God owes me. Is that the story you're living in? Because all of those stories, which are the stories that a lot of us live in most of the time, a lot of the way we think, whether we're even thinking about it or not, the, the kind of operating system that's running in our hearts without us ever realizing it are those stories. And when you're operating in those stories, you read Psalm 121 and you go, rubbish. That's not true. Because I've had a lot of hurdles on my way to happiness. I've had a lot of hurdles on my way to health. I've had a lot of hurdles on my way to having the happy family I want. I can't look to God for help. He won't come through. And you know what? You're right. Because the kind of help you're looking for depends greatly on the story you're living in. And God does not promise to give you help to live in a sinful story. He doesn't promise that. God's not an idolater. Right? All of these stories that I've been talking about is still us calling the shots. It's saying, God, uh, I need some help. Uh, and by the way, here's exactly how I need it. God, here, God, right now. Hey, by the way, God, if you don't answer this, I'm gonna be very mad at you because I've done what I'm supposed to do. I've been a good citizen. I haven't been like those people, whoever they are. <laughs> do you get it? The psalmist says, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from Yahweh, who made heaven and earth. In other words, the psalmist says, 
I don't call the shots. Why? Because I'm not God. I didn't make heaven and earth. I don't rule over all creation. God does. So when I ask God for help, he gets to define what is really help. And to the degree that I am caught up, not in a secular or an American dream or even a religious story, but the degree that I'm caught up in the biblical story, the true story of the world, to that degree, I can actually look to God and find the kind of help that's being described in Psalm 121. So, what's that story? It's a story of incarnating grace. It begins with a God who always does what is good and right and beautiful. And he makes us in his image to be his reflectors to the rest of his good creation. Here's what life is like when you trust a God who is good, right, and beautiful. But very quickly, the first humans ignore that, reject that. They say, I don't really want God to be in charge. I want to be in charge. I want to define what's good and evil. You know that's what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that they were eating from. That's what that's about, is they get to decide what's good and what's evil. I want to have a crown. I want to play God. And as a result of that, people everywhere, all of their descendants, all of us, start looking for things that are good, right, and beautiful everywhere except from God. We start exchanging the truth about God for a lie. We start trying to find things that are good and right and beautiful in the creation rather than in the creator. It's idolatry. And ironically, as we seek to find this pleasure apart from God, it just leads to more pain and more misery and more suffering. There's a great reform confession called Our World Belongs to God. Here's one of the things it says in that statement. It says, looking for life without God, we find only death. Grasping for freedom outside his law, we trap ourselves in Satan's snares. Pursuing pleasure, we lose the gift of joy. Doesn't that describe our world? I want to be free. I don't want anyone to tell me what to do. Okay. Well, you're going to be enslaved to whatever the thing is that you think will give you freedom. I want to have life. It's only going to lead to death. It's only going to lead to misery. It's only going to lead to pain. I want to have pleasure. All right. Well, you can have it, but it's going to be short term and you're not going to really have joy. And that's the world that we're in because of sin. And God would have had every right at that moment to say, away with you. I don't want anything to do with you. Out of my presence. All I'm going to do is give you pain. All I'm going to do is give you wrath. All I'm going to do is give you misery. And we would deserve it, right? That's the thing. The religious story says, come on, God, just give me what I deserve. The American dream says, come on, God, you owe me a good life because I've been pretty good. Really? Let me give you advice. Don't ever pray to God. Just give me what I deserve. Wear a helmet if you ever pray that. Because God owes you diddly squat. And yet, 
Yet, because this is a story of incarnating grace, God was not content to just leave us in that condition, to just leave us in our sin. Instead, he incarnated. He came in the person of Jesus. He didn't just look at our sin and problem from a distance. He got involved. Because he's saying, listen, the root problem here, the the root issue is sin. And God wanted to destroy sin without destroying us. And the only way for him to do that was for him to come and to experience sin, to experience evil, to experience death. And he does that. He dies on a cross so that God would forgive the shame and the guilt and the fear of anybody who would trust in Christ. He begins to show us that he's undoing the distrust of Adam and Eve, right? That's what Adam and Eve are doing. They're distrusting God. God, we don't believe your heart. God says, no, you can trust my heart. Look at my son. Look at my son who suffered in your place. Look at my son who got what you deserved. Look at him. He dies on the cross and he rises victoriously over that so that if we would trust in him, we could have the confidence that he is always with us. Get this, Jesus did not say in the Great Commission, Behold, I am with you till the end of your life. He said, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I will, as it says in Psalm 121, verse 8, keep your going out and your coming forth from this time forth and forever. Jesus rises and he begins to build a people who go, I don't want to live in a story that is just driven by how I can get comfortable and how can I be easy and how I can be wealthy and how I can have all the stuff that's just about me. Instead, he forms a group of people who say, God, we want to be made in your image. We want to be formed into the likeness of Jesus. We want to represent you no matter what. That's the story we're living in. That's what we want. We know that joy isn't found in two kids and a picket fence and a great bank account. Joy is found in God. That's what we want. So people begin to get swept up in that story. One of those people is the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, man. That guy chased anything but the American dream. Right, he's suffering, probably a physical condition. We don't know what it is. And he prays. God says, no, I'm not going to take it away. He goes, okay, my, your power's made perfect in my weakness. Great. They start to arrest him and persecute him and attack him. He says, okay. I count it a privilege to suffer with Christ. They go, okay, well, we'll put you in prison. He goes, great, I'll do ministry there. I'll lead all the guards to Christ. They go, fine, well, we'll kill you. He goes, great. Death is gain. We'll keep you alive. Nope, live as Christ. (laughs) But you can't get him. Right? And he's not going, oh, God hasn't kept me. It's so hard. Even though Paul experienced real hardship, just like you do. But his ability to see, God is providing my help. God is my refuge and strength. God is an ever-present help in trouble. His ability to do that came from being immersed in the true story that said my life doesn't consist in the abundance of my possessions it consists in my eternal reward which is Jesus Christ so we'll experience persecution we'll experience suffering 
We'll be beat down but not destroyed. But nothing can come against us. Here's how the Apostle Paul says it, actually, in Romans chapter 8. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ. Do you get what he's saying? He's going, nothing can stop this. Why? Because he's caught up in the true story. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword By the way, maybe you've heard that passage so many times you haven't stopped to think about it. All of those are things that would make us think, God isn't keeping me. God isn't protecting me. God has abandoned me, right? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. Right, we look at the people in the Middle East who are beheaded for their faith in Christ and we go, God didn't keep them. Paul says, really? What's going to separate them? Those things? He says, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Of course people would think that that would make God's love separate because there's so much suffering. And yet Paul can still say, verse 37, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the true story. And if you will embrace that story, then you can face the tribulation in your life and you can face the loss in your life and you can face the pain in your life and still rest secure in the promise of Psalm 121 that the Lord will keep you. Nothing will ultimately trap you. Nothing will ultimately stop you. Nothing will ultimately kill you. Why? Because your help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Let's pray.